Hi, I'm Casey Hobbs. And I'm Shane Mason. And we're the hosts of Nurse Talk Radio. Please join us for this special edition podcast. I made a decision to be of service to people, and I gave it my all. We are so pleased to honor Grace for her pioneering work caring for individuals living with and dying from AIDS. Thank you, Grace. It's happened again. Another head-on crash on the Golden Gate Bridge. The 60-year-old woman driving suffered major injuries. I get a phone call that there's been an accident. There was no way that anyone thought she would survive the accident. It's a real eye-opener to be on the other side of the caretaker-caregiver divide. She needed an ICU, and then she needed a rehab, and then they sent her home. And where's the doctor? Where's the expert? Where's the nursing staff? Where's the... It's like, well, actually, you're it, I feel like I've lost a best friend. Who was your best friend that you lost? My you body. My body. Mm-hmm. Nothing lasts forever, including great pain, great sorrow, great helplessness. Who am I really now? Who do I want to be now? It wasn't until after Grace came out of a coma that we even started vaguely thinking about the idea of making a film. Grace spent a year in rehab hospitals, and it was the day that she came home that we realized right off the bat that it was going to be a very amazing story. Dr. Grace Dammon's life was forever altered when a driver crashed head-on into her car on the Golden Gate Bridge. After a seven-week coma and numerous surgeries, Grace miraculously regained consciousness with her cognitive abilities intact almost entirely, but her body left shattered and severely disabled. And it's our great privilege to have Dr. Grace Damon with us in the studio today. Grace, so wonderful to have you here with us. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So, Grace, after the accident, you granted director Mark Lipman and Helen Cohen unlimited access to your family, allowing them to follow you as you struggled to reinvent yourself and find meaning and purpose in your radically altered post-accident life. Mark and Helen to release the story in a documentary film called States of Grace. Can you talk a little bit about that whole process? Well, let's put it this way. I was obviously brain damaged or else I wouldn't have agreed to that much exposure. (laughs) Let me tell you, watching it now, there's a lot of exposure. But anyway, they were my good friends. They are still my great friends. We love it. It's a gift of love on all of our parts. So that's the way I can best state it. It was a gift of love from all of us to anybody in the universe, and we think it will help. And so fast forward 11 years after the accident, here you are with us today. So can you share with us a little bit about how your life has changed since you were last here in 2015? Totally. Well, first of all, I'm not living anymore at Green Gulch, although I was head student there this fall for two months, practice period. Um, My partner, then partner, Fu, is now the abbess. She was away, so I was second, you know, seat is what you're, in terms of being in a practice period, you're supposed to take care of the younger students. So that completed my Buddhist training. I now live at the Redwoods, which is a senior living facility, Mm -hmm. and it's great in many ways. But I am by far the youngest person there. The average age is 89, Mm. and I was 67 when I moved in, 71 now. Mm. And I still work, and I still do the pain clinic. I also work at Green Gulch, teach a meditation or two or three courses at the Redwood. I'm busy. You are. I did a chaplaincy program last fall. I'm really busy. 
And when you work at Laguna Honda, it's not just the pain clinic. You're also teaching. So right. talk a little bit about that. Well, I'm also chair of the ethics committee. And as we all know, ethical issues in medicine today are fascinating. We have the third right to die piece of legislation in this state. It's complex, fascinating. So I love that. And you've been a physician at Laguna Honda for how many years now? Let's see. I first started moonlighting there when I was in 87. Okay. So whenever that was. Okay. So you're talking 20, 30 30 years you've been in Laguna Honda. And so you founded the first inpatient unit for patients with chronic pain at your hospital? No, AIDS. AIDS. With, with I did AIDS. it okay. with AIDS. Work. All right. And you uh, were honored for your work by the Dalai Lama in 2009. Yeah, yeah. So you've done a lot. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how and why you started the pain clinic? Well, people with chronic pain was seen as a real problem institutionally. And one of my friends was then the medical director. She said, would you come and start a pain clinic? And I said hating pain myself, said, I'll think about it over time. And then the next day I called her up and I said, yes, I will do it as long as I can have a team and as long as I can make it exactly what I want. She said, I give you full reign. Wow, so, that's great. Remarkable. So talk about your level of pain throughout this because your body was, was crushed. On right. Well, I got 50, something like 65 units of blood in the first 18 hours, I think. Oh, my god! So gosh. I was, that is five times my blood volume. Plus, I had factors seven, eight, mm. you know, platelets up the yin yeah. yang. Yeah. They gave me cross match, uncross match blood because I'd <gasps> lost so much. So, anyway, yeah, I know something about pain, but I don't really have never taken it seriously. And I realized <laughs> early on that opiates were just upping my regulation. Yeah. You know, up, up regulating because they made it worse, not better. So very quickly, I weaned myself off of all of opiates. So I, wow. And how do you manage the pain without the opiates? Well, you develop other strategies. And luckily, I'd sat a lot. I was a meditator. So I understood the pain came and went in nanoseconds. It's not there constantly. It's not even there for three minutes. Never, never can you get somebody to truly focus on pain for more than three minutes. And and That's just for our listeners, I mean, obviously you know a lot about it. I, I've had like just chronic back pain, nothing big for, but years right. and it's just worn me down. Right. And I did a, um, like an online chronic pain meditation management and it, it changed everything for everything, me. And right. I'm a completely different person now. Right. So yeah, right. I can attest to that. That's remarkable. My... And it was an online course. Yeah. That, so, is, great. Which, that it, is great. Yeah, so in the clinic, what is the approach that you so, take for, for uh, patients? Pretty much. We talk to the patient first. We do a full intake. Um, we don't prescribe pain medication. However, I do consult with all of the prescribing doctors, and I'm really strong in what I feel, but I don't insist on anything. And then we try to give complementary treatments. Mm. We try to get the patient to explore other modalities like touch, any kind of touch. We've got Reiki, mm-hmm. Rolfing, acupuncture, acupressure, acutonics, massage therapy. Incredible. And we've got distant healing, mm. medical qigong. We've got people who are licensed to touch doing all of those, not as their first. You know, I'm a doctor, but I also took um, Rosen body work, and I can't do that very well yeah. right now. But I do do it in the clinic. 
you know, remarkable. And what's your, I, I would imagine that you have great success because the opioids is the way that most pain right. clinics go. Right. And right. that's just a never-ending revolving right. door. Well, yeah, and we have our problems with opioids, of course, like any institution, because we've got a lot of people with both chronic pain, chronic psych pain, chronic physical pain, chronic spiritual pain, who've been on opiates forever. It's unrealistic yeah. to try to get them off too quickly, but we do make them not escalate. And, and we so, don't, don't have a lot of you know code blues for inadvertent overdose. Yeah. Which, which is huge. Right. I want you to talk a little bit about your Zen practice and how that played a role in all of this in your healing. Well, I was fortunate enough to live at Green Gulch for about 27 years. And I lived there when I adopted a child who was also HIV infected. Um, she's 26 now, but she was not expected to live beyond her first six months of life. And I had a private practice in Mill Valley. I worked at UC. I worked at Laguna Honda setting up their step-down unit. And it was before the cocktail, so it was horrible, you know. Mm -hmm. But it was both horrible and wonderful because there's nothing as bad as a life not lived. Death isn't the bad thing. A life not lived is the bad thing. So you lived at the Zen Center, and, and you've talked about how was the change from going from the Zen Center to where you're living now? Was that difficult? Has it been a hard transition? Well, you know, I miss it on the one hand. And when I moved back there to be head student, they gave me three or four people to help me out. It was totally unfair um, that any one person should have to help me out. My partner was just glued to that kind mm. of caretaking role which he shouldn't have been. I mean, I'm a perfect example of somebody who should not be taken care of by anybody near and dear. I am a person who needs to be taken care of within the public realm. And luckily, I, I've got a great retirement policy that provides me enough money so that I can afford it. That's yeah. incredible. I wanted you to talk a little bit about you before we started this interview. We were talking about uh, you were an activist uh, in the right. 60s and 70s and went. So talk about that experience and, and where it brought you. Well, it was wonderful. And I can remember my job at the Democratic Convention of 68 was to organize the medical presence. And I remember walking down on Michigan Avenue carrying a guy who obviously had had a broken leg. And I fell on top of him because the police were all over us. He didn't get into the hospital. He was taken straight to jail. And I thought, this will not do. You know, this, and I was part of the group that was convincing all my friend, college friends to come to Chicago and demonstrate. And I thought, this is not right. The means don't justify the ends. Mm. And you were talking about what that did to you spiritually. Uh, so they... what it made me do is keep looking, you know, and I went to Yale Divinity School as an atheist, um, but I became really enamored by the people with faith who had some hope, some way of having hope in their horizon. And, you know, damned if that wasn't true for me after this accident. I realized that I'd learned everything I needed to know by just sitting one long sashin. I'd really learned all I needed to know about living. So I was enormously grateful. Also, I met His Holiness. And meeting one hero in your lifetime is enough. Once I had a hero, 
now I know exactly what kind of person I'd like to be. So he practices a lot. So maybe there's something to this whole mm-hmm. practice, working on ourselves, not working on the world. So Grace, you know we're nurses, and so we're interested in knowing a little bit about what part nurses played in your career as a physician, and also what part they played in your recovery. That's a really great question. I mean, I've got to say, when I was a patient in the hospital, my first, my rule of thumb was, I would pull the covers up anytime I felt somebody come into my room who was depressed. That included nurses. So my first rule of thumb is you've got to be happy to be at work. You've got to enjoy what you do. And unfortunately, nurses are way overworked. So often they don't communicate that or they don't actually feel it. So for example, often the most important person in the room was the janitor who (laughs) always was singing. You know, the janitor. At CPMC, he always sang. I loved it. I would make him sing time and again. I'd just say, stay in my room, please. Uh-huh. You are the most healing present. So, you know, and that's item number one. Item number two is I'm dying to know how nurses were supporting their under nurses, like the CNAs, who felt supported. Yeah. And when I found a CNA who felt supported, automatically loved their supervising nurse. Mm-hmm. It's just an important part that I want to say to our listeners, to nurses out there. Self-care is key and so very important. Your capacity to give is in equal measures to your capacity to give to yourself. And unless you're giving to yourself and doing for yourself, you're not going to be really good at giving to others. And also you've got to give to the staff under you. Absolutely. Like, for example, yeah. I realized that my job uh, when I came back running the pain clinic was to make sure my staff was happy. I told all of them, don't come to work if you're depressed. You can come to work if you have a cold. We will mask you up. We can deal with that. Depression, you have no business sharing with the patient population. So we actually operate really as a team. And I think that's what delivering good health care should be all about. Absolutely. You want to mirror for the people under you the right. kind of relationship you want them to have with the patient. And so if you're supporting your staff, then they're going to support the people under them. And so what part does humor play in your personal and professional life? Because you've cracked a couple jokes in here. (laughs) So huge, huge. I mean, that was one of the great things that Fu, my ex-partner, could really do. She taught me off the limb many, many times. Hmm. And it was mostly by humor. My daughter also, by humor, were cats but with a lot of humor. <laughs> so in the movie, you say, who am I really now? Who do I want to be? So who are you now? Um, I'm still everything that I was, but what I'm doing is always listening for what's, what's calling to me, meaning, you know, what next? And I think being a Buddhist, doing this last job that I did, being Shusou, being the head student, that took care of my Buddhist training. Now I'm thinking, what's next? And I think it may be writing a book, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm just trying to figure it out. I love that, writing a book. And if you were going to write a book, what would you write about? Well, I'd write some, of course, about my own experience, but I'd try to use koans, I think, Zen koans, mm-hmm. uh, just do a couple of teaching stories about it, just because that would combine several of my interests. Great. 
So you and Helen and Mark have been traveling around the country since the launch of States of Grace, and you're sharing your story with thousands of people. You've also created an educational curriculum that's being taught at universities and to healthcare professionals. So where can people find out more about States of Grace and the educational components? Just go online, States of Grace, no periods, no you know, no spaces, okay. statesofgrace.org. Okay. And then they can find the curriculum. We're available always. We're going to New Orleans. We're teaching at, we love this, OT Annual Association mm-hmm. meeting, which is going to be 12,000 people. So Fu and I are giving the keynote address. But we love doing that kind of stuff. It's so important and definitely something that calls to so many people. I'm so glad you're doing that. So what else would you like to share with our listeners? Um, Take care of yourselves. Be of good cheer. Have hope, even though it seems ridiculous. Uh, (laughs) Nothing's gained by feeling worried and hateful and distressed about the world because the world is so beautiful. It's amazing just to watch the sun, the slant of light change. The birds come down. It's wonderful. Always a pleasure to have you with us, Grace. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. We've been talking with Dr. Grace Damon. For more information about Grace in the documentary States of Grace, visit openstudioproductions.com or statesofgrace.org. 